Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and I'm an avid book lover. I really love listening to authors tell their story. So in each episode of Inside Books, we chat to a well-known author and we also update you on other news from the books world. We love hearing from you, so feel free to get in touch. And actually, thank you to the many who have been in touch recently, congratulating us on being named as one of the best podcasts to listen to in 2017 the Sunday Business Post newspaper. We're actually delighted with the honour, but also really, really delighted that so many of you are enjoying the programme. You can drop us a line on email on insidebooks at uniquemedia.ie or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is insidebooks.ire. Later on, we'll be chatting with Michael McLaughlin, the Managing Director of Penguin Random House Ireland, about what the future holds for the publishing industry in Ireland. But first, John D. Ruddy is a writer, a teacher, a historian and an illustrator. And he has combined all of these talents to create a character called Manny Man, whose main aim is to make history interesting. Manny Man first found fame as the star of a YouTube history series. And these are short videos outlining key moments in history in an engaging way. The voice you hear on each video is John's and the illustrations you see on each video were created by John. Now Manny Man is available in print as John has written a new book star Manny Man called Manny Man Does the History of Ireland. John, it's a lot of Manny Mans in there, isn't there? A lot of Manny Man. A lot of Manny Man. <laughs> it's a really smashing little book and I say little because it's a hardback sort of pocket book and it's just 100 pages long but you really pack an awful lot of history into those 100 pages. Yes, well, um, I figured I would start at the Ice Age and work my way up um, doing my best to, to, get, to, to get all of the... Um, all of the important points of Irish history into it. And how did you decide on which moments to actually include? Um, well, I look at history as a as a great big tapestry and kind of one thing kind of leading to the next, leading to the next. So I kind of just looked at, at the very broad narrative of Irish history. So, you know, a lot, in a lot of ways, it's such a wave of invasions and uh, there's so many of these kind of turning points. Um, I found it ironic when I was writing the book how much of English history I had to explain right. uh, in order to relate to Irish history, like, you know, the likes of uh, Henry VIII and his Reformation and uh, the Glorious Revolution with uh, William of Orange and whatnot. Um, I found it very interesting how, how so much English history spilt into Irish history. Um, but that's that, that's the way that's the way it needs to be told i i look at history from a tori- from a storytelling perspective um and um i also approach it uh without without assuming anybody knows anything about history right i kind of start from a very blank slate um i do the same with my history videos um because sometimes i find that history can be hindered in that way where um you know you'll have uh, you'll have a, a history book or, or a documentary or something that sometimes takes a little bit too much for granted of what the audience knows. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that'll put off a lot of people who aren't into history. And were you sort of disillusioned, I suppose, with how history is being taught in schools as well? Uh, a little bit. Um, now, I, I've i had some really good history teachers and... I've also had some very boring history teachers, and you've actually dedicated the book to the book to all of those boring history that teachers. That I have, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, I like I I, I remember uh, when I uh, when I did my junior cert, and it was coming up to the day the day that we were learning about Bloody Sunday, uh, the the one in Derry, and I remember it was actually as it turned out 
it was the date, the actual date that we were learning about it was the anniversary of it. Oh, right. And I remember pointing this out to the to the teacher at the time, and he was like, "Ah, oh, yeah." And just moved on. And just moved on. It was like, that, that's where you jump on it. That's where you say, look at the significance of this. This time, however many years ago, that happened. Um, there's, it, I, I think I think it's such, um, such an important thing to effectively connect today with the past. Sometimes history can be treated in isolation, but... That's that's not the point of learning about history, you know. We and today is as a is a result of of what's happened exactly. until today. Exactly, and you can't you can't understand what's going on today without looking back at the past. And not only that, but you can get a much more nuanced view of what's happening today. But also, you can um, uh, as 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 I have uh, in the book, you've got the Winch, the Winston Churchill quote: uh, "The further back into history you look, the further into the future you can see." Exactly. Um, and the more we look at how uh, history of the moment is unfolding, you can just see things repeating and repeating. It goes in a in a in a cycle as yeah. such. And actually, you write again; it is in a very engaging way. But you also include really great facts that people don't know. Again, making it interesting. Well, that's the thing. Um, sometimes, yeah, I, I, I like I like integrating a lot of the 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 basic knowledge, but then also throwing in some little little facts that uh, that I that I enjoy, um, like uh, the inclusion of that the Irish accent is potentially one of the bases for the, uh, the Caribbean accent. Mm-hmm. Um, I as as an actor, I'm 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 a bit of a I'm a bit of a one for accents. And I always, I always find it fascinating how one accent influences another, and particularly a lot of the, the to call them the, the New World accents, um, like you know the American accents. Some reckon that like the Ulster accent has had originally had such a strong influence on it, which would explain a lot of the hard ors mm-hmm. in uh, well between that and the kind of Cornish accents. But um, on top of that you would have had um, people who were sent over to the Caribbean as indentured servants in uh, Cromwell's time. And uh, uh, some reckon that that had, uh, that if you imagine, um, uh, if you imagine, you know, someone, um, someone from Down and Kerry or whatnot, you know, chatting away and, you know, that's a seriously aggravating kind of thing. And you can hear that that kind of the that kind of rhythm coming into some of the Caribbean accents. You know, it's got that same. They that, brought their accent yeah, with them. Yeah, obviously it was a <laughs> it was a complete mixture of the various African accents that would have come over from the people who brought over. And as you hear now with new Irish, you know, who have their own accent, but they come over and and take some of the Irish accent too, and it's just brilliant to listen to. You oh, know, yeah. but one of the other uh, elements, I suppose, that I loved in the book, one of the facts was that Vikings actually did not have horns on their helmets. No, they didn't, and that I is never a, knew that. that is a pet hate of mine, <laughs> and it doesn't help whenever you see the Viking splash tour going around with all true. the. Point. Helmets. So, where did that story come from? Uh, that came from 19th century romantic artists who thought, <laughs> you know, who thought, let's make uh, let's make these Vikings look even more fierce, and we'll put horns on their helmets. And then all of a sudden, people began to just uh, just began to um, pass on this idea that Vikings had had horns on their helmets. 
And it's something that is just constantly perpetuated today. And if there's one thing that I can that I can come 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 away with from this book is the the Vikings did not have horns on their helmets. Uh, if you think about it, they're totally impractical. If you were to raise an axe or a sword above your your head, <laughs> you'll either impale your arm or you'll knock your helmet off if totally you've got true. big if you've got big horns sticking out of them. Well, you can't say you don't learn something when oh, you when you that? listen to inside books. And so let's go back to to Manny Man. So Manny Man is the narrator in this book as such um, but he didn't start out in the book he started out as a, as a video character well Manny Man actually goes way back Manny Man goes back to the days where I was doodling all over my books in secondary school uh, I've been drawing Manny Man since I was about 14 right and um Always interestingly, with a, with a slight educational angle to him, when I studied for my leave insert, I wanted to do, um, uh, or I wanted, I was, I was studying King Lear, and I wanted a comic book version of the play, and I couldn't find a decent one, so I made my own using own. Manny Man. And uh, I and and that really helped me visualise things, because I'm a very visual thinker, and uh, so it really helped me study the play really quickly. And where did the name come from? Manny Man. Um it it seemed to just kind of come to me. Um It's been like Boaty McBoatface, is it? Y- y- sort of sort of <laughs> a little bit. Although that being said, um my mum who passed away a year and a half ago, um uh she she reckons that whenever uh, I was a baby and she was, you know, just um, cuddling, cuddling into me, she'd be saying, ah, you wee manny man. There you go. And it's potentially something that has just... Uh, sat in my subconscious all those years. And it hasn't gone away. <laughs> so he he first came out, you know, I suppose, to, to the world yes. um, as part of this video creation. So tell me about that. Um, well, two th- I started doing those videos in uh, 2013. Um, the first video that I, that I thought to do was the history of Ireland. Um, and again, going back to wanting to educate people about history. Yes, exactly. And also just that fascination with how one thing leads to the next leads to the next and I wanted to see how how simple I could make it you know like uh, and, and I mean the the video is even is even more uh, brief than than the book um, and just to explain it then so the video is you're doing the voiceover the illustrations are on the screen and you're explaining history in a in quite a short period of time six seven minutes maybe yeah yes exactly like the Irish history one is six minutes uh, and have uh, since since gone on to do the likes of World War one World War two Cold War French Revolution American Revolution all sorts of stuff I did a three-part video about the presidents of the United States from Washington all the way up to Trump so that was fun. Um, but uh, yeah, I um, I I did the I did the Irish history one, and it kind of went viral in and around Ireland. And then I thought, right, well, sure, I'll, t- I'll try something with a bit more of a, an international uh, appeal. And so I went for World War One, and this was right at the start of uh, 2014 that I launched this. So that was perfect timing for the centenary of the mm-hmm. beginning of World War One. So it just took off. And ever since then, I just kind of went from topic to topic. So how many videos do you have up now? Uh, That's a very good question. Roughly about 10 or so, which is a very small number for a semi-successful YouTuber because YouTubers usually are putting videos up every week or every every other week or whatever. But um, the nature of my videos... I hand-draw all of these pictures. Like, they're not even digital, they're hand-drawn. So I... um, 
it takes me the guts of a month to make one video. And how many views have you had? Uh, the channel itself has had, I think, close to about 14 million views at this wow. stage of the game. Yeah, the World War Two, uh, World War Two video is the most viewed. Um, which is uh, just over 3 million views now. And are you able to make money out of that? Yes, yes. Brilliant. So it's, oh, it's, it's, it's great, you know. And why then did you decide to move Many Man into the, into the print medium, into a book format? Um, well, it, it's, something, it's something that I've, that I've always kind of had, uh, had an idea for. Um, um, I, I, I approached uh, the Collins Press... Uh, at the start of 2016, whenever I launched my Easter Rising video, um, I'd approached publishers in the in the past uh, about it, but I think with the marketability of the YouTube channel and the success of it all, I thought, right, well, now is the time. The iron is 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 hot. So um, I approached the Collins Press about this, and uh, they were very interested. They they were like, right, well, what do you what do you see this book looking like? So I did up a couple of sample pages of what what the book looked like. Because to be honest, I, I actually uh, I presented just the video, and I was like, I'm thinking of something like this, but in book form. And mm-hmm. they were like, Okay, well, what does that look like? Yeah. So I was like, Okay, here's some sample pages, and they're like, Yeah, cool, that, go for it. That that'll work. Yeah. And you, as you mentioned, you do all the illustrations for the video and mm-hmm. for the books. So which which do you prefer, the writing or the illustrating? Um, well, I, ooh, that's, a, that's a tricky one. I love, I love illustrating because it's so relaxing. It's wonderfully relaxing. Um, uh, I've, I've, I found that I really enjoy doing kind of architectural drawings. Um, a lot of buildings. The next Manny Man book that'll be coming out, Manny Man Does Revolutionary Ireland, 1916 oh. to 1923. Oh, right. Interesting. Uh, that'll be coming out in October. And, uh, it has... It has loads of kind of architectural drawings, the likes of the customs house, and um, I even did an, an entire map of 1916 Dublin, uh, which is hilariously detailed. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I I love the I love the illustrating part of it, but at the same time, I love I love writing it. I love being able to put my own my own uh, character to it, um, and just kind of researching the history. And then trying to simplify it so that anybody can understand it. As you this. say, telling telling a story yes. as such. And just, you know, as well as you enjoying the illustrating, you're actually really talented at it. Um, because at the back of the book, you list all of the Taoiseach of Ireland and the presidents and all have their own tiny little illustration. But each one is actually the image of who they're supposed to portray, which is brilliant. Like Sean Lamass has his little pipe. Charles Haughey has the, the slicked back hair and Mary Robinson's smile is just perfect. So considering these illustrations are just tiny, you've managed to, to personalise them all. Thank you very much. I, I always get a really good kick out of yeah, I, I, I love that because you know you have a lot of generic Manny Man characters um in there, but I always love uh depicting real people and I always get such a kick out of it whenever I whenever I just get it spot on it and, and I just finish drawing it and I'm like, oh yes. It that looks works. like the person. And as, as well as that then, with the cartoons in the book, again, a lot of them are tongue-in-cheek. They have sort of, you know, little jokes or words underneath and it's totally tongue-in-cheek, which which is great. So it'll nearly appeal to, you know, kids, I suppose, in one sense, but adults reading will nearly get that other layer of Absolutely, fun. yeah. Um, uh, and, that's, and that's always kind of the way I aimed it. You know, it's... 
It's suitable for children, but adults get just as much out of it. I mean, you know, an eight-year-old could pick this up and an 80-year-old could pick mm-hmm. this up. Like, my granda read it and he loved it. Um, but, yeah, like, I mean, there's there's lots of little jokes and sometimes I can be hilariously subtle with the jokes where I, I'm, I'm almost challenging the audience to say, right, let's see if anybody gets this. Yes. Um, like, uh, there was there was one uh, in there um, during the Easter Rising, the uh, general who was proceeding over the the courts martial of of all the rising leaders he was uh, general blackadder and uh, so i had him and uh, um general maxwell discussing things general maxwell is like uh, you know we shall execute these these rebels or whatever it was and uh, general blackadder's looking back at him a rather cunning plan sir there you, you know, go. So all, 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 all the Blackadder fans out there will be like, well, oh, I see what they totally, did there. Totally, totally get it. Exactly. And John, just before we let you go, it's John D. Ruddy. Have to ask, what does the D stand for? Well, the D is uh, Daniel, my my father's name. Um, that was uh, given given to me as my middle name. But uh, I thought I'd, I'd throw in the D in there. Otherwise, I'm a, a, a Wolverhampton goalkeeper. Oh, you share a name with somebody? Yeah. Ah, there so, we go. John, so John Ruddy's the goalkeeper and John D. Ruddy is the YouTuber. And are you a Wolverhampton fan? Uh, well, my brother-in-law's from there, so I suppose I have to say yes. <laughs> well, if you thought history was boring, you have to read this book. Or if you know someone who thinks history is boring, buy it for them. John D. Ruddy, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books. And don't forget that Many Man Does the History of Ireland is in all bookshops now. And you can check him out on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter on Inside Books IRE or email us on insidebooks at uniquemedia.ie. Michael McLaughlin is a well-known name in the Irish publishing industry. He has spent 26 years working in the sector, so it's pretty much safe to say that he knows it inside out. Michael, thank you for joining us to have a chat about where publishing in Ireland is at currently. But first... Can we clear up something? You're currently wearing two hats as the managing director of Penguin Random House Ireland and as publisher with Penguin Ireland. Can you explain the difference between the two? So Penguin Random House Ireland is the umbrella group for a a lot of different publishers. There are seven different divisions under Penguin Random House and uh, I manage the business at Ireland, which means taking care of sales, marketing, publicity. And, and also publishing. But my other focus is as publisher of Penguin Ireland, which is an imprint within one of those divisions. And I suppose that's kind of uh, takes up most of my time. And uh, that's the imprint that publishes authors like Paul Howard, Ross Carroll Kelly, Sinead Moriarty, uh, Liz Nugent and um, various sports people like Brandon Driscoll and Paul O'Connell over the years. So that's my main focus, I suppose, on a day to day business. And you've been with the business here in Ireland for 15 years. I have. Um, I started uh, my publishing career um, before that uh, with Poolbeg Press, where I worked for about four years. And then I set up my own um, publicity and marketing company uh, and worked there for seven years. And I suppose over that seven year period, I had uh, worked with a number of Irish publishers and then increasingly with UK publishers. And Penguin was a client of mine as a PR marketing company. And I suppose back in '02. We started to talk a bit about um, the Irish market and what they as Penguin were doing or not doing in the Irish market. And we decided that it might be a good idea to set up an Irish publishing company. And I suppose before that, there uh, hadn't been um, a UK publisher with an Irish office publishing Irish authors and publishing uh, into the Irish market um, from a Dublin base. So we set up that 
company Penguin Ireland in September of 2002 and uh, yeah it's hard to believe it's uh, 15 years now Mm. just uh, this month and um, I suppose we you know we started off quite small and um, we've grown that business and I suppose over the years um, different things happen and I suppose then three or four years ago Penguin merged with Random House and we became Penguin Random House and uh, and that's how the Penguin Random House part of my sort of job came about. And how many people are based in the Irish operation? So Penguin Ireland, um, as distinct from Penguin Random House Ireland, is made up of uh, three editors, one full-time and two part-time. Um, Patricia Devey is their full-time and uh, concentrates, I suppose, on the commercial uh, end of things, both in fiction and non-fiction, that stretches into literary. Brendan Barrington is part-time three days a week and he concentrates on more literary but does stretch into kind of commercial fiction and non-fiction. He works and runs Dublin Review, the literary magazine, for his other two days a week. We also have a part-time editor, Claire Pelly, who concentrates on the commercial side. And uh, and, that, and then there's me, who I'm not an editor, I'm the publisher, and I suppose I'm concentrating on um, acquiring non-fiction, more, I suppose, commercial non-fiction than, than literary non-fiction. And so that's that's effectively Penguin Iron. And then on the Penguin Random House side, we have a number of salespeople, five or six, and we have a communications team made up of four or five people as well. And uh, and that makes up uh, Penguin Random House Iron. So it's quite an, an integrated approach. But you do say as well you publish no more than 20 titles a year. That doesn't seem like a lot. No, it's not. And actually, it's over the last two or three years, it's been fewer than that. Last year, it was 12. I think this year, it's 13 titles. Uh, it's quite small. I suppose that's our, been our philosophy from day one. We, we like to be very careful about what we buy, but we like to, I suppose, squeeze it tight uh, uh, from an editorial point of view, make sure it's the best book possible. We work very hard on making sure the titles are well edited and well produced and well packaged, I suppose. And and then we also, that allows us to give uh, time and space then to work on publicising those titles and selling them and making them into successes and obviously um, getting as many readers for those books and for those authors as possible. And I suppose it's a model that has worked for us well over the last few years. But it is, I suppose high wire stuff sometimes because uh, you know not every book can be a success and not every author can be a success uh, but fortunately over the last few years it has worked quite well and that's what we're sticking to. And given the the range of genres I suppose that you work with does it make it more difficult then to choose what those titles are going to be? Well I suppose every publisher has their own taste and judgement and it, it might seem strange but I suppose we would in the office ask ourselves is that a Penguin Iron title, meaning is that the kind of title we would like to publish, we'd be interested in publishing and think there might be a readership for it. And I suppose every other pub, every publisher is different. So sometimes in the office we might say, oh, that feels much more like a Gill title or a Hachette Iron title or a Pool Beg title or a Mercia Press title. And it's kind of shorthand for saying, you know, sometimes books find the publisher that suits them and sometimes uh, publishers decide to go uh, with certain authors and certain books and sometimes they don't. And I, I kind of am a great believer in that it's all about the relationship and it's about the author particularly uh, enjoying working with a certain publisher and um, working with a publisher who maybe has a vision for them and for the long-term success of them as writers. And uh, and sometimes that works for us and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and and how much of it is down to instinct? Uh a lot. Um, again, it's back to that taste and judgment. It's you know we are going on what we like. Um, we don't publish what we don't like. Um, and 
I suppose what we found over the last few years that is that we like less and less uh, of what we see and what we go after and um, and that means sometimes the decisions are quite easy actually. We get very enthusiastic about, about what we like and I suppose in the last two or three years there's only been about a dozen new books that we have actually liked and enough to want to publish. Um, and, and when you say you sort of don't like or you're liking less and less of what you see, what's what's the problem with it? Is it is it the writing is not good enough or what's the issue? Well it, de- it depends. Sometimes the writing might not be good enough but you think you can improve it with ed- with a lot of editorial work and that's the case um sometimes we we think it it might not get enough of a readership um uh, to justify buying it sometimes we're prepared to pay in advance that an agent or an author um doesn't accept and wants more and goes to another publisher uh, there are lots of different variables involved um and uh, you know we just have our own taste and judgment that we use and it's probably different from other publishers and um, that's what makes publishing so interesting there as I always say to authors that I turn down um, this is just our opinion it's you know and we are probably wrong and we're frequently and often wrong and I was going to say that actually do you ever live in that constant fear of the one you say no to is the one that's the the worldwide phenomenon yeah well obviously nobody wants to turn down the next Harry Potter or Dan Brown or or whatever it might be but that's just the risk you take and I suppose I do every year see authors on books turning up on other publishers lists and becoming successful and I suppose I console myself with the thought that at the time we decided not to go for it or we lost it um, we decided that was the right decision at the time and even though you might six months or 12 months or 18 months later but I think, God, how did I, how did I miss that? How did I not see that? But you have to just accept that was your decision at the time, and you live and you learn from that. And um, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's gone, and you just have to forget about it and think about the next thing and move on. And how many submissions do you get a year? Well, we get kind of dozens every week. We have an electronic submissions process where people email in their manuscripts or part manuscripts, and we read every single thing we get in. We don't have outside readers, so the editors in-house read every single thing. That must take a lot of time. It does, but we found it's successful and works for us. Uh, We do say honestly to people that if you're expecting a reply in a week, you unfortunately won't get it. We do take a number of weeks or maybe a couple of months to get back to people, but we do get back to everybody and say whether we are interested or not. Um, and yeah, we have bought authors and books from the slush pile, as it's called in the in the business, and uh, we will continue to do that. And I suppose we have an open submissions policy, which uh, a lot of other publishers here and abroad don't have. Um, yeah, it is burdensome sometimes but um, we continue and have bought in the last couple of years one or two things from that um, such, such pile. And then when it comes to signing a new author or I suppose renewing a deal with an author do you prefer to work with the author directly or the agent? It doesn't really matter. Um, most successful authors if they're publishing more than one title usually end up having an agent and, and that's absolutely fine with us. We're happy to work with um, agent and, un- and unagented authors. Um, Ireland has um, a handful of, of agents who we know quite well and then quite a number of authors in Ireland have UK agents as well. It, it really doesn't matter actually. And in terms, I suppose, then once the book is in the pipeline, obviously you've got a shelf date in sight and you need to think about marketing it. You have to get it out there to the masses. So there's a huge plethora, I suppose, of media platforms that are now available to get a book out there. Does that make it easier or harder from your perspective? I think it's just 
something we accept that the, the world has changed. You know, social media wasn't a big deal five years ago. And now my colleagues in the communications team spend a lot of time on social media and it has significant impact. You know, we published um, Russell Carroll Kelly's new book and, you know, Ross O'Carroll Kelly wasn't on Twitter, you know, six or seven years ago. And, and now, now he is and he's huge on Twitter. Yeah. And that is one of the number one ways that people, that he lets um, his fans know that he's a new book out. So it's just a part and parcel of, of, what's, of what we do. And I suppose traditional media has changed. Obviously, newspapers aren't quite as um, powerful maybe as they were if a number of years ago and the balance has kind of changed, but they're still important, as is broadcast media. And uh, so it's just another thing that we do, we do and we try to cover uh, with the communications team, you know, every part of it to make sure that people know about, uh, about authors and about their books. And how important are book reviews still? They're never important when the review is bad and they're always very important when the review is good. <laughs> so, um, you know, but, you know, I think it, it's, it depends. I think f- there, there aren't a huge amount of readers for certain reviews, um, but obviously publishers, when they get a good review, will put it on their social media accounts and they will put it on the cover of the paperback of the book. And, it's, and I think for certain types of books, maybe for literary fiction and for highbrow nonfiction, I think reviews are more important than for other types of books and other genres of books. So I wouldn't um, discount it, but it, it, it's limited at times. And then book sales in Ireland at the moment, I mean, you hear stories about them that they're going up, that they're going down, that people are reading more electronically as opposed to physically. So what's your view on where it well, is? We know um, because of the data that we get from Nielsen Bookscan, who track sales of books in Ireland and in other countries, that book sales for the last two or three years have been going up. They obviously fell significantly, about 30 to 40% when the economic um, disaster happened, but they have recovered covered quite significantly, not to the same level they were in 2007, but um, this year is going to be higher than last year. Last year, sales went up about 10%. The previous year, they were up around 10% as well. So sales are quite strong. I think electronic books have uh, flattened out. The, you know, most people who, who bought a new device wanted to buy ebooks and populated that device, which meant that sales of ebooks did go up on an upward trajectory quite fast, but they have um, slowed down. And I suppose ebook sales seem to be around 15-20% of all new book sales now. So physical books are really important and, and, they're, and they're selling well. Children particularly really love physical books and seem to enjoy and prefer reading books uh, physically rather than uh, on Kindles or on devices. So that's great and hopefully great for the future of, of books and for reading and for bookshops. So we're very supportive of bookshops and we want them to continue and very grateful that they do and they do such a great job. And in terms of looking ahead, I suppose, you know, obviously you know what you're going to be bringing out next year. Is there any particular author that you're excited about? Yeah, there's an author, um, a new author called Arnold Thomas Fanning and he has a book, a memoir coming called Mind on Fire and it's about um, his decline into uh, into mental illness and uh, how he ended up on living on the streets actually and uh, in on du- in Dublin and how he recovered from that and it's a fantastic uh, emotional um, raw memoir of a man at the you know at the, in the in the depths of despair who recovered and is doing very well now and I think people are going to hopefully read it and be blown away by um, the wonder the wonderful writing first off and the amazing story so that's one book that we're very excited about for, for spring of next year And before I let you go just wondering do you write at all? I don't, no definitely not and couldn't and don't want to and have no interest in doing that so. <laughs> No literary aspirations at all Definitely not but I suppose I enjoy when authors uh, become successful and and write great books and it's a great privilege to be able to read writers and their writing before other people have a chance to read it, the general public and it is, there's nothing more exciting than um, 
bringing a book to readers and, and them feeding back then how much they enjoyed it and for authors to be to be happy. That's I, I thoroughly enjoy that. And I think there's a great need for publishers. And the great thing about this world we live in is that a lot of people discounted publisher a few years ago and said, oh, people will go direct. And, um, and that really hasn't happened. And I feel really confident about the future of publishing and publishers and, and what we're able to do. And I think we do a really good job generally, not just Penguin, but all the other publishers out there. And, and long may publishing continue. Michael McLaughlin from Penguin Random House Ireland. Thank you for joining us on Inside Books. Thank you. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books IRE. And if you want to get in touch, email us on insidebooks at uniquemedia.ie. I'm Breda Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a Unique Media production.